Tom Woods Show, episode 1381. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the school year is winding down as I record this, and it's soon going to be time to think about next year's homeschool curriculum. Well, how about getting your mental health back and not running yourself ragged as a homeschooling parent anymore by using the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum? Your children will get a top-notch education in all the standard subjects, plus they'll learn how to start their own home business, how to be an effective public speaker, how to manage their money, the kind of topics that don't get taught anywhere. Plus, get $160 worth of free bonuses when you subscribe to the curriculum through ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Paul Gottfried is back with us again. We're going to talk a little further about this whole left-right thing because I realize that I've really made a major mistake in the way I've been looking at this, and I need somebody to walk me through this realization and what its implications are. Uh, But also, it's just it's fun to pick Paul's brain because he knows so darn much. Paul holds a PhD in history from Yale University. He's a Guggenheim recipient, retired now from Elizabethtown College, author of 800 million books. Um, well, I'm going to ask him about his books and ones, maybe one he recommends in particular, uh, especially for people who aren't intellectual historians because Paul can write at a very, very high level at times. Um, But I've just got a bunch of things that I want to run by Paul and get his feedback on, and it's going to be a uh, fun conversation. It always is with Paul Gottfried. Welcome back, Paul. Well, thank you for having me once again. As I just got done telling you, although I didn't tell you the the real punchline here, I did an episode on left and right a couple of weeks ago, and Mm -hmm. it has left me thinking ever since then. I've been rolling the ideas around in my mind, and I think I've come to a conclusion And the conclusion is that I honestly think I've been wrong about something, consistently wrong in my – the way I look at the world for a long time. And the the area where I've been wrong is I have spoken of there being a left-to-right spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I now believe that the word spectrum is not correct. That's just a category mistake. Now, if if all we were talking about is on one side we have people who – don't favor much government involvement. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, we have people who favor a lot. Then obviously, mathematically, I could construct some kind of spectrum there. Right. But since I don't don't believe that's fundamentally what differentiates left and right, I therefore don't think it's a spectrum. I think either you are, for example, on the left or you're not. Either you accept the presuppositions of the left to one degree or another Mm -hmm. or you're not. I don't see how it's a spectrum of, okay, you're entirely left – then you're only 90% left and you agree with me 10%. You either have my worldview or you don't is more or less what I believe now. Mm -hmm. Do you think I'm right about that? I think you're entirely correct. I think there is, well, let's see, there is a leftist worldview. It's based on equality and a homogenized humanity. Uh, I think it's one point that Leo Strauss (laughs) got right when he tried to define what was the right and what was the left. The right rejects those beliefs. It does not believe in a universal state. It does not believe that all human beings are are the same, except perhaps in a Judeo-Christian spiritual sense that they have souls and should be treated with a certain dignity. But the right does not feel any imperative whatever to equalize the human condition. And, uh, you know, it also revels in social, ethnic, other forms of diversity. And that is what distinguishes it from the uh, from the left. Uh, I've had a problem over the years because 
you know, I see the right as being instantiated in different forms in different places. You know, if someone were to ask me, is a 19th century, someone like uh, Joseph de Mest, is he a man of the right? He definitely is. Uh, but then if you were to ask me, was, you know, the poet Wallace Stevens a man of the right or, or, uh, or Faulkner, William Faulkner, I'd have to say yes. Although I'm, you know, the question is, what exactly do they agree about politically? And I think at the end of the day, I would say that they both accepted human difference as a necessary and good thing. They had no desire to homogenize people. They accepted racial, cultural, gender differences as being real. And in many cases, they defended these things. So that this would make them figures of, of the right, even if they defended different political systems in different places. This is a point that David Gordon and I have been discussing for 30 years. You know, he says, can, can you be a libertarian and be on the right? And could you be an, uh, uh, an authoritarian and be on the right? And the answer is yes, depending on the particular circumstances that you're addressing and the historical situation in which you find yourself. All right. This is a very interesting answer. I, in fact, I heard the answer you gave because I, I've been listening to some of your stuff. I heard the talk you gave on how the left conquered the right, which is mm-hmm. a very provocative title. I when I, It was recently linked to on uh, Bob Wenzel's website, Target Liberty. And right. so when it was recently linked, I thought it must have been your most recent talk. And it turns out it was from 2011. But was, <laughs> it never changes. It never changes, right? You could have given it yesterday. Right. But I, I found it very interesting that your your first response about what the right is all about was, you said, hierarchy of some kind, right. of some kind, and then, in general, some form of opposition to equality with a capital E. You know? right. So, in other exactly. words, you might accept it in the sense that you mentioned, but otherwise, with a capital E as an engine of revolution, mm-hmm. absolutely not. Right. Now, at the same time, one point that I raised in a recent episode was that in the American context, there are no official hierarchies, mm-hmm. although Jefferson spoke of a natural kind of aristocracy that mm-hmm. he might have favored, but that didn't have any state privileges, but that nevertheless might be recognized by the general public. Mm-hmm. So doesn't that indicate that in the American case, there's kind of been a left, I don't know what the word would be, a, a leftening of, of this general right-wing principle? Yeah, I think that is certainly true. I, th- I think the, I think there's a case of American exceptionalism. This does not, however, mean the United States has always been committed to the left, but it has it's had less of a conservative character than European countries once did. I would, however, point to the fact that uh, certainly in antebellum America, uh, and even, even well into the 20th century, you do have organic hierarchies within American communities. Even when I grew up, we knew who were the important people and which were the important families, and they had, they had a certain amount of social privilege. Uh, and people simply accepted that. There were certainly were strong you know, gender roles that were maintained legally and, and socially, so that the leveling effect that we're now seeing does not necessarily come out of the conditions of an earlier America. I think a lot more, though, does go into the, if we want to say there is an outlook on the world, maybe not a, you know, with the tip of the hat to Russell Kirk, maybe not an ideology or a program, certainly, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, uh, a feature of their outlook on the world is somewhat, but not entirely captured in the word subsidiarity, but the general idea that although a monk 
may feel like he has an obligation or, well, let's say a missionary rather, a missionary or a, or a, a mendicant friar may have a generalized obligation to the entire world. Right. Those people are carrying out what the Catholic Church calls supererogatory works mm -hmm. that, that generally don't – it would be irresponsible of you as the father of a household to be over in uh, Burkina Faso right. helping people. <laughs> Right. Because you have a set of obligations that are a series of concentric circles, mm -hmm. and those obligations are greater the closer the people are to you. And you can find that you know you can find scriptural support for that if, if you're looking for it. But the point is that is the way, the right wing does not say I have the obligation to uh, not only a generalized obligation to the world, but certainly no obligation to socially engineer other parts of the world. Right. This would be completely foreign to the way he he looks at things. And now not saying this is always the case. I'm absolutely not saying this is always the case because when my friend Bob Murphy did go and do some volunteer work in Haiti, he reported back to me that he genuinely met some people who don't just spend their time screaming in the street, but actually you know, picked up a pickaxe or whatever it is they work with mm -hmm. and went mm -hmm. to work. And they genuinely were were being uh, selfless in that mm -hmm. regard. Mm -hmm. But there are so many cases of people who who sing about the uh, you know, the happiness of the world and how much they want to bring that about, but are terrible to their own – in their own individual cases. Like John Lennon could sing all these beautiful songs, but man, was he an SOB to his first son. You know, that's his main obligation – and Julian was given the back of his hand for years and years. Or Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. You know, the, there's an earthquake in Lisbon. He's all tears and pity. How's he treating his own children? Yeah. You know, so I think that's another right-wing thing. Well, I, but I, I think that the left has gone well beyond, you know, professing this spurious uh, cosmopolitan humanitarianism. I think what you see now is that the left openly expresses hatred for its own uh, ethnic, uh, gender group, whatever, uh, a majority of people graduating from college now express absolute hatred for the white race, particularly the whites. Men come out and express hatred for their gender. I think what we're seeing is sort of a pathological extreme of, you know, this earlier, should we say, bogus cosmopolitanism that you find in Jean-Jacques Rousseau and other people who profess you know, love of the human race, but treat their own families badly. I, I, I think now you see absolute hatred for one's own group. And this to me is really remarkable because the left has never been this crazy in history. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it is, it is hard for me to imagine how people really think this way. Let me get a little bit more specific from you about what do you think it means to want to homogenize people or societies? Well, I mean, what, what, what you want to do is have everybody live within the same culture. You want to end any distinctions, as human extinctions, as they've existed until now. For instance, there'll be no racial distinctions. There'll be no gender distinctions because you'll be free to change your gender at any time you want. You can say, I'm a man today. I'm a woman. I'll be a woman tomorrow. Uh, and uh, this, this leveling, homogenizing process that we see taking place I think is another form of reductio ad absurdum in terms of what the left believes, that there will be no fixed identities that distinguish people from each other, or any identity that you have is one that you can change at any time you want. Uh, there is no human nature, except insofar as we decide to play a particular role at a particular time, which everybody else will then have to accept. 
how does the welfare state fit into this? Because, uh, you know, you, you made a very interesting statement in your talk because you were saying something that sounds like the opposite of what I hear from a lot of libertarians where they say politics is downstream of culture. That We have culture as this freestanding, spontaneously right. occurring phenomenon. Right. Mm-hmm. And once those assumptions are shaped a certain way, politics tends to follow. Mm-hmm. But your argument seems to say to it's opposite. more the opposite. <laughs> yes. First you have politics and politics influences culture. Yes, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a political determinist that way. Uh, I think you cannot understand any of these bizarre developments that we're living through without assuming a ma- democratic managerial state, uh, which is a lie to certain globalist uh, multinational interests, but which by itself has tremendous power in reshaping human beings. And I, I think that most libertarians and many leftists of my acquaintance know uh, they're always yapping about cult- well, it's culture, as if culture is a totally independent thing that just happens without any coercion being involved. And of course, there is a lot of coercion going on. Uh, when the government comes after you because you behaved inappropriately or expressed the wrong views and so forth, so, so that I, I, I think that uh, it is very important to start with politics. We, we may go on to other things and say that, you know, the media have influence, but the media is always egging on the state to take even more power, right? I mean, it's not that the media, you know, is taking a libertarian position. You know, they want to let leave people alone. It wants the state to engage in increasing social engineering. So, you know, in this respect, the, the media simply is the, uh, the crowd that incites the state to take even more control over our lives. Let me give maybe what might be... Well, I don't know if it's a counterexample or not. I'll, let's see how you would deal with it. Right. The case of marijuana decriminalization does seem to be a case where people did not need to be led by the media or the state. Where right. It did seem like the population was out ahead of both, and really there was just suddenly a sea change in people's outlook on the question. Right. And it would seem as if politics followed that. Well, I, I, th- I think in the case of the marijuana, what you have, uh, use of marijuana, is there's almost a kind of symbiotic relationship that the state is itself committed to overturning traditional morals. And in this case, you know, sort of to enacting aspects of the counterculture that existed in the 1960s, but at the same time, young people who go through the educational process and are exposed to the culture industry have also taken over this view. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of harmony of interest that we see taking place in which, you know, the state is quite happy to legalize something, but it's going to legalize something which is going to make us less the way we used to be, right? When, when America was, you know, a bourgeois Christian country, we're going, to, we're going to look less the way America historically was. So therefore, the state, which is engaged in constant social engineering, is delighted, you know, to give in on the demand for legalizing marijuana, just as it's very happy to go after people for smoking cigarettes, you know, going after people who don't cart you in the local store, uh, because this is also a way of controlling our behavior. And cigarettes are bad because, you know, uh, ordinary, uh, I suppose, ethnic Catholics or blue-collar Protestants in the South, they're the ones who smoke the cigarettes. So you're sort of going to punish them, while at the same time you glorify the marijuana culture. I want to ask you, if I may, a little something about the panel that you, I guess, chaired at the Mises Institute at their Austrian Economics Research Conference that I wanted to attend, but... I had been out of town quite a bit, and my kids were on spring break, and I, I just – my place was at home. Right. But 
a part of my heart was indeed in Auburn, but I got to see your panel. Um, I agree with you. I'm, I thought Brian McClanahan was just great. I think he is very, very underrated and he's very serious and he's totally uncompromising. I mean, he just could not care less what they say about him. He is just going to speak his mind and and good for him. Mm -hmm. But the topic of your panel was the interwar right, uh, presumably in the, in the U S and that, interests me because this is when you had an American right before there were, I mean, yeah, eventually there was the, um, after the, I guess somewhat after the war, I don't remember the exact year, but there was the foundation for economic education, but even that was hardly a think tank. They weren't trying to influence public policy in any discernible way. This was a, a more, I don't know, innocent, disorganized and, uh, idiosyncratic right. And right. to the extent that it existed at all. But was there a right, and and what were these people all about? You know, I, I think it's a good question. If you ask me, was was there a right? I I, I think we're doing a sort of searching, <laughs> searching for a right, or searching for those attitudes that were characteristic of a certain group of mostly writers, you know, uh, novelists, journalists of, of the period that we could identify with a right. And I think there are figures who definitely you know, represent uh, rightist attitudes that are no longer acceptable. Uh, H.L. Mencken, of course, is an obvious case. But, you know, even a poet like Wallace Stevens, I think, would fit into that category, certainly Robert Frost. The argument that I was making is that uh, you have a, a, a sort, of a, sort of a spontaneous emergence of a, of a right that belongs to an older America, that's still part of an older America, even if people like Isabel Patterson you know, claim to be or present themselves as rebels. And it's, it's an older wasp America out of which these people come, one that no longer even exists. You know, I, I have one remark that, you know, waspdom has, uh, you know, sunk to the level of Bushism or Jeb Bushism or something like that. But, uh, you know, these uh, Stevens went to uh, Harvard. He was a student of George Santayana, with whom he maintained, uh, you know, an, an almost sort of a lifelong correspondence. Ivy League universities still counted for something. Uh, when Nock went to Bart, it was still an identifiably Anglican or Episcopal college. Nock is also another very good example. I mean, he is, uh, he is clearly a man of the right, you know, even if he sort of def- defends Jefferson, not the Democrat, but, you know, Jefferson, the aristocrat. So, you know, I, I, I think the con- the cons- what there was of an American conservative, by the way, even Isabel Patterson, who sees herself as a radical libertarian, writes a very incisive critique of liberal democracy. This is something I would n- never expect the conservative movement to do today. You know, I, uh, she would not be allowed onto Fox News because she would be too right-wing. So, so that I, I, I think sort of looking back at these people, it seems that there are, you know, there are figures we really can admire. There are figures in, in many cases who are overshadowed, politically overshadowed, certainly, by the emergence of a, you know, of the Buckley movement in post-World War II National Review conservatism. Uh, most of them just sort of sink into oblivion, except for some of their literary work. And we still read Wallace Stevens. Uh, we used to read, you know, when I was in college, we had to read H.L. Mencken. Now he's considered to be a racist and an anti-Semite or whatever he's being called at the moment. I don't think anybody reads Isabel Patterson anymore. And the lady who produced uh, Little House on the Prairie is now fallen into disfavor because she didn't hold what are now politically correct views about Native Americans. 
but you know, sort of going back and looking, and, and I'm not even including the uh, the agrar- the southern agrarians about whom uh, Brian spoke. They certainly qualify as as conservatives uh, or, or as men of the right by my def- by by our sheer definition of the right. So I think there is uh, a good deal to be found. By the way, one of the reasons I became interested in this is because precisely because these people sink into obscurity, you know. And uh, I only became uh, you know interested in them. By the way, after I met Perry Rothbard, I hardly ever read him before. Except for Wallace Stevens, whom we were assigned as a poet when I was in college, and Robert Frost. I also met. Uh, I I had no idea what the politics of Frost were until my my now deceased friend uh, Peter Stanless uh, wrote a biography of Frost and discussed his politics with me. All right, let's talk practicality for a minute. Now, the conservative movement has latched on to the Republican Party. That's mm-hmm. obvious, and so. Therefore, what's acceptable to say in the conservative movement, that's not the only reason, but one reason that some things aren't acceptable to say, even even things as, as modest as we really need to cut the budget pretty severely. Mm-hmm. You really, no one's really saying that anywhere in the conservative right. movement. Even something like that, they, even, the, even their own principle, they don't really even utter mm-hmm. because it would make it hard for their candidates to, right. to get elected. So, all right, the conservative movement would be somewhat different. Maybe not a lot different, but somewhat different if it didn't feel like it had to be respectable for the sake of the palatability of the Republican Party to the American public. So let's say now something about the Republican Party, which for better or worse is the closest thing in the political sphere anybody has to a a right. And man, the left thinks this is a right wing, a radical right wing. And I think to myself, man, if you want to see a radical right wing, you could get it. But I guarantee you'd be begging to get these people back. I mean, of all people Mm -hmm. to say that about. But what – given that the American people – you said in your talk that – Charles Krauthammer had said, look, the American people are conservative. They've been conservative for the past 50 years and they haven't changed. How you could have lived through the last 50 years believing that is just beyond me. I mean, you would have to be absolutely delusional. Of course, they're not conservative. And of course, their minds have changed. So in light of that, in light of the the fact that that statement is false, they're not primarily conservative and their minds have not changed. Mm -hmm. What on earth would you propose that a politician seriously advance if he wants to be successful, I, I, I think our options are extremely limited. Um, taking a look at the politics of college graduates, particularly women, white women, I am appalled by how far to the radical, crazy left they have moved. I'm not sure what one could do at this time except, you know, argue for decentralization if that's still possible. And I'm not even sure what that means. At this point, because you have college educated women who are leftists in Alabama and Mississippi, as well as in New York City. But uh, I I would call for cutting budgets. I would call for decentralization. Uh, Anything that disempowers the central government is something that I would call for. One thing that I would definitely call for is a reduction in military expenses. I think the military is something which seems, in addition to the Republican Party, to drive to drive the conservative movement. It seems to be a diversion. You know, the enemy of the weak seems to be a diversion from all these internal problems that we're suffering from. The the political leader, uh, the congressional leader I admired most was was Jones. The man uh, was from North Carolina who died a few months ago. 
Uh, he seemed to take the right positions on everything. Unfortunately, he became a fossil by the end of his life. But, uh, you know, I think most of the positions that he took on foreign policy particularly were, were correct. I would be very happy if our president were Rand Paul rather than Trump, um, because I agree more with his uh, constitutionalism and sense of fiscal responsibility. But, but getting back to the question, at this point, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, what, what, uh, what chances remain to turn things around? They've all gone too far in a radical direction for too long. All right. Well, here's a question that I think you'll find a lot easier to answer. Right. And these can be these can be from as recently as yesterday or as long ago as you like. But if you were to recommend, let's say, three to five books to somebody who listens to the listens to what you're saying and is very sympathetic and wants to know more. I'll get to Gottfried books in a minute, but let's say non-Gottfried books <laughs> that you think would be the most helpful in getting this person's head on straight. What would you recommend? Um, that That is a good question. Uh, I'm trying, you know, it, it's a good question because I'm not sure how the reader would relate to something that I offered them. I mean, if I said, you know, read Spengler's Decline of the West, uh, or given the kind of the, what, what what effect will this have, um, you know, on on the the person reading it? You know, there is a book that I reviewed for the American Conservative, and except for all the Jaffaite garbage in it, uh, it is very good in discussing how an all powerful government developed under the supposed aegis of Congress, which has not done its bits, by John Marini. And, you know, if you can read past all the Jaffai junk, which he probably had to put in there in order to get the Claremont Institute just to promote his book, it is very good on the growth of the Another book that, that I like is your, by the way, is your book, the one on economics and the depression. I think you're right about the direction in which, which we're moving. I, th- I think there will be ruination because of, of government spending in the end. Uh, I don't know whether this is going to, you know, get people to change their minds about government expenses. J- just about any book that has come out, you know, on the cultural revolution in the United States, gay rights, uh, transgender, the gay agenda, feminism, uh, and any critical work that has come out on this, I, w- I would recommend. I, one of the things that I find absolutely frightening is that the Republican Party refuses to address the cultural, social radicalism of the Democratic Party. Instead, it yaps about Marxism all the time, or we are on the road to socialism, as if we weren't on the road to socialism for the last, you know, 100 years or something. We're on the road to socialism. Uh, What about uh, transgendered bathrooms? What about the feminist movement? All the things that are destroying the family and which the state is imposing on us. They don't want to take those things on because they're afraid of losing yuppie votes or, uh, you know, offending the Republican Party. And any any book that you can recommend me on that, you know, I would recommend as compulsory reading for my friend, my hypothetical friend. Um, no, and I know what you mean by hypothetical friends. You don't mean that in real life you have no friends. You mean in this particular case, in I the, was calling case, out of the right. air that <laughs> right. there would be a hypothetical person. Right, right. right. Okay. Now you've written uh, quite prolifically and, you know, I, as an author, I don't like to 
privilege one of my books over another. That's a, right. a case where sometimes I do believe in equality. Mm-hmm. You know, I want people to read them all. Right. But there may be some that are more easily grasped, let's say, by the lay reader than others. I could certainly say that about my own books. Right. So of, of the Gottfried collection, what would you recommend to the beginner? Uh, multiculturalism and the Politics of Guilt. I remember that. Without any doubt. <laughs> I mean, that, that book is the most accessible of all the books that I've written. You know, it, it, it can be grasped by a popular readership in a way that some of my other books cannot. Yeah, I remember your your uh, book on um, – oh, jeez. I'm sorry. I can't remember the title, but this gives my middle-aged brain at work again. But it was the one about um, the movement of the left, the strange – Oh, yes, that's that's a very relevant book. It was just reissued by the publisher, and it's the uh, the strange death of Marxism. That's what it is, yeah. yeah, In which I make the argument that, you know, the left is no longer primarily Marxist. It's culturally radical and very successful in a way that Marxists could not be in in Western countries. The reason I bring it up is that if that book – you can tell that's written by an intellectual historian. That was written, I think, at a very high level. It was. Uh, that was not mm-hmm. really written as an entry-level text mm-hmm. for the general public. But but multiculturalism and the politics of guilt uh, certainly is. And I, I've reviewed several of your books. I think I reviewed that one. But if I did, it would have been in, in my sprightly youth right. when I, I could actually remember things I had written. I, I, I'm now writing a book, uh, two books. <laughs> one is on anti-fascism in which, you know, I uh, discuss the struggle between populism and anti-fascism. That's sort of the core, at the core of the book. Then there's another one. It's a, it's a critical anthology on the conservative movement, which Cornell University Press will be bringing out, which deals with, uh, you know, why the conservative movement is a fake conservative movement, uh, something that neither one of us would, you know, would have to be convinced of. No doubt. So yeah. uh, do you have any idea of a release date on these? Well, it'll be some sometime in the course of this year. Uh, I don't know exactly when. Uh, I'm actually much more interested in the book on anti-fascism because anti-fascism seems to be, you know, the ideology, the current ideology of the Western world. Even though there is no fascism around, you know, it's like uh, it's like fighting something that doesn't exist and uh, or it's just a vestigial presence right now. Uh, but it does serve to keep the left united and. The, the enemy that they're attacking now is, is mostly the populist movement, which I suggest in the book does not have the strength to prevail in most Western countries. Well, I'm trying to think of one final thing because we're, we're up against the time that I've basically committed you to. So, right. uh, yeah, you know what? I am going to – yeah, and it's not fair of me to end on this note, but I'm going to do it anyway. We've talked about fascism before because you've written a book on that. Right. And I do want to at least try to approximate what these people who complain about fascism, what I mean, if if we're being as charitable as possible, charitable to a degree they couldn't possibly deserve. Right. Here's what I can come up with. They would say they look around the world and they see a resurgence of nationalism, mm-hmm. uh, authoritarianism, and and a and a belief in an authoritarian leader, mm-hmm. and let's say beefed up immigration controls. And actually, I don't even know what it is other than those things. I think it's those mainly those things. Right, right. Well, if if that's not fascism, then is it a phenomenon that we could nevertheless give some name to? Yes. Just I, for analytical purposes. Yes, I, I, I think the word populism definitely fits. And there's a book by Roger Eatwell 
and Matthew Goodwin that came out on uh, on populism, which is very good. It it it, it basically. Make, you know, it does make the argument that there is not much of it. There's no 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 connection, in fact, between fascism and the current populism that the authors can find. But they also reach the, I think, the uh, the excessively happy conclusion that at the end of the day, the populist and the liberal democratic establishment will make peace. Uh, I see no evidence of that of that of that happening. But the uh, uh, I think the left always needs some kind of devil that it can fight against because, you know, like the fascists in Italy in the 1920s and like the communists, they are always, you know, a movement that hasn't arrived in power, right? So they haven't arrived in power because they're battling some overwhelming evil force. And the overwhelming evil force is populism or Donald Trump or something like that. This is true of all revolutionary movements that, you know, even when they take power and they become the state, they never want to admit they're the state. They're, they're, they're still fighting some, you know, some fearsome enemy who may have the upper hand. And this, what I, this is what I think the, uh, the war against fascism, the people who have the power, the elites, you know, and their academic drones are the ones who are uh, talking about you know, how the, the fascists control the state, when in fact they are the ones who, who control the state. And the economy and much <laughs> yeah, and the culture. And the culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're the ones who live in fear of repression. That is absolutely crazy. <laughs> it <laughs> is. Crazy <laughs> well, some, some do live in fear of repression, I think, but you know, others are just using it as a uh, as a tactic to consolidate and maintain power. Well, how many of them have conferences where they don't dare wear name tags? Or they they won't allow <laughs> photographs in the right. conference room. I mean, and I'm not mentioning. You know, I, I raised this example purely hypothetically, Paul Gottfried. But I mean, right, really, right. Mm-hmm. there are there is nobody on the left thinks. Oh my gosh, if people find out I'm a socialist, if they find out you're a socialist, it'll be like, hey, you're one of the chic people who really gets it and is. Woke. And, and and if if you're a black racist, you do very very well, don't you? I mean, they, you know, they invite you to conferences, and you have white people getting up and attacking the white race the way they did at Al Sharpton's conference last week. Oh, jeez, yeah. So so racism is not bad as long as you're an anti-white racist. He is, uh, he's, I was just seeing a headline on Drudge Mm -hmm. calling him some kind of a kingmaker among the Democratic candidates. Isn't that astonishing that anyone would have so little dignity as to go hat in hand to, of all people, Al Sharpton. (laughs) My favorite headline, I've I've said this before, but the, the New York Post sometimes, for all its faults, will sometimes come up with a good front page headline. Right. And the headline was uh, – or actually, this might not have been a front page headline, but it was one of theirs. It was Sharpton, colon, it's racist to investigate my taxes. Well, he actually said that, you know. Yeah, well, if if he actually said those very words, then I take I, then I take it back. It's a it's just a, a middling headline in that it's case. It's a middling headline, exactly. He's doing the work for them. Yeah, but what's scary is scary is the people who went there and kissed his ring, and groveled and said that you know that that in effect white lives don't matter are ahead in the polls for the presidential race. Yeah, I mean this is scary. I mean these people are are either totally unprincipled opportunists. Or just leftist maniacs, but you know they could win. Any of them could win the presidential race unless you know things turn around dramatically. Yeah, I don't. Uh, honestly, I don't know. On the other hand, a lot of people had trouble predicting what was going to happen in 2016. Did you, I can't remember. 
Did you predict Trump's victory or not? I did. I did predict Trump's victory. Yes. I'm not so sure about next year. Yeah. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. I mean, obviously, if the economy stays strong, he's got a much better chance. I mean, what could be a more, more pedestrian observation than that? Yeah. But sometimes he's his own worst enemy. Sometimes he picked like, did you read the story? I'm, I'm sorry. I'll let you go in a second. I'm sorry. I just, okay. I just keep talking. <laughs> but I just saw it's just like we're having a conversation here. Right. Um, I forget that the recording is on. Did you see that story about how he decided to acknowledge Israeli sovereignty of the Golan over the Golan Heights? No. It was that he said to a few people on his staff, all of whom had a vested interest in the situation. Right. Hey, listen, guys, I got a lot to do here. China, North Korea, whatever. Give me a quick history lesson on this. Make it quick. And they spoke to him for a few isolated minutes. He said, all right, bam, we're doing it. Now, see, that, that's a bad – that is not a good quality. No, that right no. there is not a good quality. No. Uh, to go against the the, the 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 position of the U.S. for a long time. And by the way, the position of the U.S. for a long time on a lot of things may well be bad, and maybe we do want somebody – who will change them, but will change them after actually knowing what's happening right, over there. Right, right. <laughs> no, what I, the consequences I think, I think will be. you're right, yeah. Oh, jeez. All right, well. No, no, the, uh, he, he is, uh, you know, a, a very poor standard bearer for the right, if that's what he's supposed to be. Uh, and, you know, he, he never opens his mouth without my uh, feeling an urge to cringe or beginning to cringe. He's uh, a... Uh, uh, I don't think I've ever heard him utter a complete sentence unless he's reading from a teleprompter. He he, he is an embarrassment, um, but the people on the other side are absolutely repulsive. Elizabeth Warren seems to be polling better right now than Donald Trump. Yeah, that's that's not good. But on the other hand, it will be interesting to see what happens on that debate stage because he could regenerate the enthusiasm right by right. just because I mean, I don't see how no matter how the problem is, Warren is wonkish. And she, I think, in spite of the best efforts of her advisors, will continue to be wonkish on a debate stage. Right. And right. he will steamroll wonkish. If he's up against Bernie, then he just makes Bernie out to be a doddering old man, makes some jokes. But Bernie has no sense of humor. Right. So right. Bernie will just bark something back at him that'll be ineffectual. Yeah. So maybe that works. I don't know. Against Joe Biden. Well, I mean, if, if he's up against Joe Biden, he's got to just make the nickname Creepy Joe Biden and just call him that all the time, Creepy Joe Biden. Right, right. But, but it, is, it is upsetting that the only way that a president can hold his office against these people who are maniacs on cultural and social questions is by playing some kind of game in a debate. I know. I, yeah. Look, I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going with the cards that are on the table here, Paul. <laughs> I don't know what else to one. do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're all, that, they're all, they're all low number cards. Yeah, <laughs> they, they don't are. Match. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. It's like we have a two, three, four, five, and seven in our hand. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm trying to bluff the best I can and use every other strategy I've learned. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Paul. Thanks for for, for this because, as I say, I just I just wanted to talk through a few things because I was left reeling when I suddenly it suddenly occurred to me I'm looking at this all wrong. Right. It was a very stimulating hour, and thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you. Right. All right, folks, a couple things. Remember, I'm going to be speaking at the State Convention of the Libertarian Party of Florida. May 3rd through the 5th is when that's taking place, so make sure and be there. You do not have to be a member of the Libertarian Party of Florida to attend, and you're going to get to meet Walter Block and some other very fine folks there, so it's going to be a great time. So you want to check that out at tomwoods.com events. And then secondly, if you haven't gotten it yet, check out my little 
series of resources that I put together for you for how to create an online course. It's the easiest way to create something that you can sell online. The online course is the fashionable thing now to be doing, and it's fashionable because it works. It's your entry point product, and it positions you as an authority. It's worth looking into and doing. A lot of people think about it, but very few people do it because they don't know what step one is. So I put together some free resources that walk you through every single step, and you're just going to love it. You can get that free package of stuff at tomwoods.com slash courses. And, you know, I have a little bit of experience making online courses since that's pretty much all I did for several years of my life. So I do know a little something about this. So tomwoods.com slash courses is where you should go to pick that up. And I will see you tomorrow with my episode with Lou Rockwell. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.